What's up, player? You know, there was actually a band from the 70s called Player. And in 1977, they released a song called Baby Come Back. Baby Come Back. How does it go? Any fool could see that there's something in everything about you. Baby, come back. You can blame it all on me. I was wrong. And I just can't live without you. 70s love songs. I probably heard this song for the first time in the back of my parents' Ford LTD wagon, going somewhere on a summer vacation, but I've never forgotten it. Baby, come back. And this song is is an emotional love song in which the writer of the song is appealing to his baby to come back to him. Up until this point in the book of Galatians, Paul has been making a very dense theological argument, seeking to convince the Galatians, these Christians of various number of churches in an area in modern south, southern Turkey, And he is trying to convince their minds that they're no longer slaves under the Mosaic law, but they have been set free by Christ to live for God. And so he's been making this dense theological argument, and in our passage today, I'm just going to be preaching in verses 12 through 20, but in our passage today, there is a very noticeable different tone where up to this point has felt more like theological treatise, Paul now kind of switches gears to 70s love song. Because this is a very emotional appeal. It's a very personal appeal. It's a very pastoral appeal. And it flows with the whole book. Now, if you're not in the book of Galatians already, would you open up to Galatians uh, we're going to be in 4, 12 through 20, but if you would just flip back to 1, 6, Paul writes this to this, this group of Christians, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Baby, come back. And then in 4, 9, we read this. We read, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, you've been converted, God has saved you. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? Baby, come back! Or in 5.1, for freedom Christ has set you free, babe. Stand firm then for it. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back. Come back to me. But what we're going to see in this passage today, this song, this section of Paul's writing He's not just calling the Galatians back to him. Ultimately, he is calling them back to Christ. What we're going to see in these few verses is that the Apostle Paul puts on a gospel clinic to love others unto Christ. And it is very instructive for us. Three ways Paul calls these Christians back to Jesus. He, he makes a loving appeal. We'll see that in verse 12. And then he, he has this loving confrontation, 12 through 16. And then he does this loving motive 
check in verses 17 through 20. And if I were to sum it all up, I would say Paul is, is persistently loving these Galatians back to Christ. And so for us, it means this. We must persevere in the risky business of loving each other to Jesus. We must love each other unto Christ. And so let's look at this loving appeal in verse 12. It's, it's very interesting where Paul starts this appeal. In English, it starts with the words, brothers, brothers. Now, I get called bro all the time by people. Bro, what's up, bro? Brah! Bro! There are people I don't know. There are people who, I have a brother, Scott. He calls me bro sometimes. I get that. There's other people in this church that bro me. I get that. I bro them back. We're bros in Christ. But sometimes I'm just out and about and I get broed. Hey, bro. What's up, bro? And so it can be very kind of a generic bro. Paul is being very intentional here. He means every letter of brothers. He's being very intentional. So here we have this Jewish apostle calling these Gentile converts brothers. We're all family. We've all been united together in Christ. It's, it's essentially saying, given where we were just were, in 4, 1 through 7, 1 through 11, Paul is essentially saying, hey, I too am a former slave of the law, but I, by God's grace, have been set free. And you, Gentiles, you heard the gospel and you were former slaves to the elementary principles of this world, but you were set free as well by the blood of Jesus, and we're all family now. Brothers. We're all part of God's new family in Christ where there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female because we are all one in Christ. So Paul starts, brothers, this loving appeal by saying, recognizing what we have in common. But then what we read is this, brothers, I entreat you, become, become as I am. Now, that word become is the first command in the book of Galatians that Paul calls these Christians to change. It's, it's the beginning of many. And so he's saying, you got to become, you got to become as I am, which means they need to unbecome of something they have been messing with. Become as I am. And, and, and when Paul requires this of them. He's not saying, hey, Galatians, you need to become Christians like I am. He's already laid down the fact that they are. If you just look up at verse, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, so you, Galatians, are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through, a God, through God. They, the triune God, has saved them. So whatever Paul is saying, become as I am, it's not becoming a Christian. They're already Christians. 
He says, become as I am for I have become as you are. And what he's saying there is this. Hey, just as I was delivered, you have been delivered. I am what you are. We are all one family in Christ. But, but still, there's a difference because he's, he's calling them to be something that he is. And what he's essentially saying is this. Brothers and sisters, you need to unbecome slaves of the law. You need to release yourself from this false teaching that has snuck in. You got to give that up and become like me, living out the freedom that Christ has accomplished for us through his blood. And he would sum it up in 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's all about Christ and the life I now live in the flesh. I live under the law. I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul, Paul is saying, come, become as I am. Not living under the law, but living in freedom for Christ. In that sense, become as I am. And so... Here we have this appeal. It's this urgency. It's getting close to begging. Saying, oh, Galatian Christians, brothers, family in Christ, I urge you, live in the freedom that I'm living in that Jesus paid for you for. Now let's apply this. Let's apply this loving appeal. I'm going to apply it in two ways. First is this. Every one of us in this room, every one of us are going to need to be appealed to at some point. Because here's the sober reality. We are all prone to wander. We are all prone to drift away from Christ from His grace, from faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. We're prone to drift away from that to some kind of elementary principle of the world in which we are trying to save ourselves again. It's our default setting. And that we need to get into our settings of our heart and switch off self-saving to Christ has saved me. What this means is that we need Pauls in our life. Brothers and sisters, to love us to Christ by appealing to us with the gospel of Christ. So we, we need to be appealed to on a regular basis. But not just we need people appealing to us to live in the freedom of Christ. We need to be appealing to one another. We must be willing to love each other unto Christ to make loving appeals to one another. To say to one another, oh, brother, sister, you don't need to be living like that. Become as we already are, free. You don't need to be living in fear. You don't need to be jumping through hoops. God in Christ has saved you. 
Now, in order for us to be appealed to or to appeal to one another in love, it will require a certain degree of proximity to one another, to know each other. And that's one of the reasons why we have life groups, living out what Christ has done for us together, appealing to one another, being appealed to by others. But before I move on to the next point, let me just ask you this question. Why do you think Paul is making this appeal? Why, why is he bothering? Why is he taking the time? Because he loves these churches in Galatia. He loves these Christians. He knows many of them by name. He personally saw them trust Christ. He personally put a lot of work in in order to establish them in the faith. And he wants what is best for them. And what's best for them is not Paul, but Christ. And so Paul's saying, baby, come back. Come back to Christ. We must love each other unto Christ. And now we've seen Paul's loving appeal, and that's kind of a spring for, for us to appeal to one another. But let's look at this, at this loving confrontation in verses 12 through 16. In this section, Paul lovingly confronts the Christian Galatians, and he does so in the most interesting way. He uses a contrast. He contrasts their attitudes towards him back in the day to their present attitude towards him while he's writing this letter. In 12 through 14, he's going to say, back in the day, do you remember? When I first showed up, I was in rough shape. I preached the gospel to you, and you, you heard it and believed it, and there was this warm, loving, blessed unity among us. But in 15 and 16, but now it's gone from warm to cold. It's gone from loving to hostile. It's gone from blessed unity to this kind of cursed tension. And so what he does is he does this gospel recounting. He says, do you remember our gospel story? You remember where we were? Remember what happened? And so he points them back, back then in verse 13. We read, You know, it was because of a bodily, bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. It all started when I showed up. Do you guys remember when I showed up in Galatia? I was preaching the gospel to you, and if you flip back to chapter 3, verse 1, you get a sense of what was happening when Paul preached the gospel to them for the first time. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That's a reference to his gospel preaching. The Holy Spirit was animating Paul's proclamation of the gospel to such an extent that the Galatians, these Gentiles, they were thinking it was as if Christ was on the cross hanging before them for them. They were impressed by the Holy Spirit to such a degree that they're like, He died for me. 
And so Paul originally showed up doing what he does, preaching Christ crucified. But you'll notice in verse 13, he also points to the fact that he showed up in rough shape. You know, it's because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. There's been a lot of speculation on what this bodily ailment was, and when we get to verse 15, we'll do a little speculating together. But what you need to see is, whatever this bodily ailment was, it didn't keep him from preaching Christ crucified. In fact, his difficult circumstances were the very means by which God directed Paul to these Gentiles to hear Christ crucified and believe. That's how God got him there to preach the gospel. So Paul's doing this gospel recounting. Do you remember when I showed up? I was in rough shape, but I preached the gospel, and man, there was a response. Speaking of this response, in verses 14 and 15, he describes their response. He first describes what their response was not. And so in verse 14, we read, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. He acknowledges that his bodily ailment, whatever that was, was, if you're reading out of the ESV, a trial to you. Now that word trial, it, the Greek word for it can mean trial, it can mean temptation, and generally speaking, the context gives it away. It's not necessarily super clear here. So if it was a trial, it would have been like this. Paul's physical condition was an unexpected burden on these newly converted, newly minted Gentile Christians. It was a trial to you. Or, if it was a temptation, it would have gone something more like this. When I first showed up, I know I was unimpressive, and I know that preaching uh, the, the good news of a crucified hero would have been off-putting to you. Because you know in 1 Corinthians 1, that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are per perishing. It is folly to Greeks. And so what this could be a reference to is the initial reception, these Gentiles who were, who were not Jews hearing this message of a hero who was crucified. That's scandalous. So it could go either way, trial or temptation, but either way, Paul was very aware how these Gentiles could have responded, but they didn't. They could have scorned him. They could have despised him. That word literally means to spit upon. You could have spit on me, but you didn't. And the rest of 14 describes how they did. You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Instead of spitting on him, they received him as, as a very messenger of the risen Christ. Maybe another way to say it is this. It's, it's if, as if Paul was talking to these Galatians, he's saying, do you remember when you received me? You received me as I was sent 
by the risen Christ, a messenger of his, to proclaim to you, to reveal to you the risen Christ who had died for you. You recognized that it was Christ who sent me to you. And what he then goes on to point out in all of this is, is just what was true of them. They, they didn't scorn or spit. They received him as an angel, as Christ Jesus himself. In verse 15, we read, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. The idea there is, hey, uh, it could mean you, you would have given your shirt off your back for me, or it is a reference to his bodily ailment. Did, did Paul have an eye disease? What we see here, though, is the Galatians responded to Paul's preaching of the gospel, not in scorn and spit, but with affection and love, receiving it. It points to this being a work of the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit of God descending on these Galatians, giving them eyes to see and a heart to recognize that they're sinners in need of a Savior. Their very response to Paul is an indicator of the Spirit changing their hearts to love a Jewish apostle. What Paul is pointing to is he's saying, hey, back in the day when I first came to you, you responded to me and you were warm and you were affectionate. You would have given your shirt off your back to me. That was then. And then he turns to now, verses 15 and 16. And he asks two questions that are confrontational in nature. 15, what has become of your blessedness? Where's the love? Where'd the love go? Where's the warmth and affection, Galatians? What happened? What, what did the self-sacrificial, Christ-like, spirit-born love go? That's, that's what is meant by blessedness. That they had been changed by God and now they were loving their neighbor as themselves and that is a blessed state. What happened? Paul's asking. It's confrontational. And, and then he goes further in verse 16. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's not just the absence of love. Now he's sensing some hostility from them. And the truth that he references in six, verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's the same truth that Paul's been describing as the truth all throughout the book of Galatians. It's the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Paul is confronting these Galatians for a very similar reason he confronted the apostle Peter back in Galatians 2. Remember, he confronted Peter because Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their conduct, these Galatians, their lack of love was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul keeps preaching the gospel to them. And so Paul's 
Like, hey, I first came to you preaching the gospel. You received it. And now you're sacri- you were sacrificing yourself for me. You would have plucked your eyeballs out and given them to me. But now, because of this same gospel I'm preaching to you, you're, you think I'm your enemy? Paul is giving this kind of gospel recounting. It's a loving confrontation. Paul is simply showing these people he loves so much that their posture towards him has dramatically changed from when it started to where it is at right now. It's a very effective way to confront somebody. It's a very helpful way to show somebody something has actually changed. And what Paul is showing them is you've moved from being warm to cold, from being loving to hostile, from blessing to curse. The, the enemy, by the way, maybe you think of that as being in quotes. Have I then become your quote-unquote enemy by telling you the truth? Because certainly it wasn't the Galatian Christians that came up with this idea that he was their enemy. That came from a group of people, these false teachers that had come in after Paul left. And I'm going to circle back to that in just a second. But let's ask the question, how do we apply something like this? A loving confrontation that we see in the scripture of Paul confronting this, these Christians almost 2,000 years ago. How do we apply that to our life today? First one is this. Brothers and sisters, expect conflict. Expect conflict. There'll be conflict among us. Don't be surprised when a relationship suddenly sours. Don't be surprised when there's all of a sudden a chill in your relationships with somebody else. Don't be surprised by that. But, two, how we respond to that coolness matters. And we do what Paul does. We take our cues from the gospel apostle and we act in gospel love. We move to the coolness. We move towards the hostility. We move towards the tension. If you're sensing tension in a relationship with a brother and sister in Christ, you go to them. Take your cues from Paul. Say something like, okay, let me just recount gospel history together. You say to them, you know what? Three months ago, I thought we were doing great. But when we were hanging out last week, you wouldn't even talk to me. You wouldn't even look at me. Did something happen? Did I offend you? We don't wait when we sense tension, a lack of unity and peace. We move towards it. But but it's not just on those people who sense something's off in a relationship. Like if I become aware that I may have offended someone, I'm going to go to that person. But certainly this doesn't mean it's only those people who sense that. For in Matthew 18, if you're a Christian in the room and you have been offended by someone, if you've been offended by, by a brother or a sister, Jesus is very clear. You go to the one that has offended you and show them their fault. Whatever the case may be, 
we move towards one another when there's tension, just like Paul moves towards the Galatians here. And he confronts them in love. There's one more piece to this that I want to apply. You might be sitting in your pew right now, and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. On paper, that sounds wonderful. And then you're in it. Then you're experiencing tension and coolness, a little hostility from something, somebody else. And it goes from theory to practice, and you start getting lumps in your throat. Do you know what Paul was doing in this passage? He was risking something. He was risking his relationship with the Galatians by confronting them. There are no promises. Paul doesn't change the gospel. He doesn't apologize for the gospel. He moves right towards them. Say, what's happened? And he knows that he's risking it. The risk we will encounter together when we appeal to one another or confront one another to, for Christ's sake, the, the risk is that we will offend someone else more. And the greatest of all risks is what we don't like to acknowledge is that we may lose a friendship over it. Confronting people in love, whether it's an appeal or giving some gospel history, a recounting, it's hard because it's risky. You're risking the relationship, but, but Paul's love for the Galatians, it was more important than fearing that risk. Paul, his love for these people, it was greater than any fear of risk of losing them because what he wanted most for them was for them to find their all-consuming passion in Christ alone. So he was willing to risk it in confronting them. And so must we. When we realize what's at stake is a brother or sister's all-consuming passion in the risen Christ, we must risk the appeals, risk the confrontation. So we persist in loving people unto Christ even when they think we may be an enemy. We must love each other unto Christ. We've looked at a loving appeal. We've looked at the loving confrontation. And now let's look at this loving motive check in verses 17 through 20. We, we, we just got done in a section in which Paul is, is contrasting the Galatians' posture towards him back then and then at the time he wrote. And Paul now, in verse 17, he moves into a different contrast. A contrast of motive. 
and he's going to contrast the motives of, of a group of people they're call, he's calling they, them, and his own motive. Why they're pursuing these Galatians. And they're very, they're two very different reasons. So let's look at verse 17. Why these false teachers are pursuing the Galatians. They make much of you. They being the false teachers that have come into Galatia after Paul has left. They are telling these new Christians that, um, hey, I'm, we're glad that you believe in Jesus. That's good, but that's not enough. Not only do you have to believe in Jesus, you need to start obeying the Mosaic law, which means you need to be circumcised, guys. And what it also means is you've got to start shopping in Woodman's kosher aisle, in the kosher aisle alone. And then you need to pick up a Jewish calendar and start living according to the Jewish calendar. And when you get all those in place, you're good. And so what the Judaizers are saying, these false teachers, they're saying these Gentile Christian, Gentiles need to be Jews in order to be Christians. And Paul's like, no way. That's not the gospel. Because the gospel is faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. And so when he says they, he's referring to these false teachers these false teachers make much of you, Galatians, but for no good purpose. The word make much of is a word we get the word zeal from. They're zealous for you. They're, they're pursuing you. They're wooing you. They want you to be part of their people. They want you in their orbit. And on a side note, this is why this stuff is so dangerous, it always feels good to be wanted. All of us want to be wanted. And these false teachers are making a very emotional, hey, come be with us. You're wanted. Paul says, these false teachers, they're pursuing you. They're zealously wanting you. And I know it feels good to be wanted. But they're pursuing you for, quote, no good purpose, end quote. And then he elaborates. He says, they want to shut you out. These false teachers want to shut you out. Shut them out of what? They want to shut them out to separate them from Paul's gospel influence. The true gospel. The life-giving message of Jesus Christ. They want to separate the Galatians from Paul like sheep from a shepherd. They don't want Paul preaching to them because what Paul is preaching sounds crazy to them. Paul's going to keep on hammering on the fact that it's faith alone and Christ alone. It's all by God's grace alone. They're trying to, they're trying to shut them out of Paul's influence, but we haven't gotten to the real reason yet. It's the last clause of verse 17. They, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's the same word from zeal. Hey, they're zealous for you. 
so that you would be zealous for them. What Paul is exposing here is the motive. They're doing it for themselves. If you flip over to chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, it is, again, the reference to those are the false teachers we're talking about here. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They want a good showing. They don't want their name drugged through the mud, being associated with the crucified Messiah. But not just that, verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast. These people, false teachers, they do not have the Galatians' best interest in mind. They are self-serving. When it comes right down to it, they're just trying to get a crowd. Let me try to illustrate this. Imagine you've got a sister in Christ, and um, she's really lonely, and she meets a guy, and this guy starts just kind of talking her sweet. You bump into this guy. You run into in a context outside of the normal, normal kind of paths of life, and you see a side to him that she is completely unaware of. And so you become aware, hey, she's getting wooed by this guy, but this guy is up to no good. That's what's happening here. Baby, come back. Come back to your king. These men are leading you down a path that is of no good purpose. They're doing it for themselves. Now, this kind of self-serving ministry was going on in the first century, and it absolutely is going on in the 21st century. Men and women seeking to gather a following in the name of Christ only to build their own kingdoms. I need a Learjet. But before we start pointing the fingers all around the health and wealth gospel, folks, it shows up here. I mean, we want our church to succeed, right? We want our church to grow in maturity. We want our church to grow in numbers. And with those desires can come this subtle temptation on a motivational level that, that what we do is ultimately for ourselves. And that's why this is such a good motive check. Brothers and sisters in Christ, why do we do this? Why are we showing up Sunday after Sunday? Why are you going to life groups? Why are you giving your time and talent and your treasure? Why are many of you serving on multiple ministry teams? Why are we doing this? Is it to make a good showing in the eyes of Christendom in Wisconsin? Is it to boast in ourselves? Do you know why it cannot be about us? Because we are nobody's savior. There's no life-transforming power coming from me, coming from you. We're just branches 
Jesus is the vine. We're not in this to make much of ourselves. We are in this to make much of Christ. And it is a very different motive than what these false teachers were pursuing the Galatians for. That's where Paul goes in verse 18. He says, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. That, now, this is Paul talking about his pursuit, his zeal for the Galatians. I'm pursuing you for a good purpose. And what is that? Verse 19, he says, my little children, my little children. Again, this is familial loving terms with a, with a dash of authority in it. It is my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. My little kids, brothers and sisters in Galatia, who I am suffering for. Paul is comparing his ongoing ministry to the Gentiles, to the anguish of giving birth to a baby. Which helps me, because I can use that illustration. If the Apostle Paul uses the illustration and he's a guy and never had a baby, I can use it too. I've never, I've never given birth, but I've seen three births. And with each birth that I've witnessed, I have come back so relieved that I am not the one giving birth. I don't have anything to do with that pain and suffering. But gospel ministry is being likened to childbirth. making loving appeals, loving confrontations, being accused of being an enemy, it can get very painful. But what makes childbirth worth it is bringing another human being into the world. And when that baby is given to you, it's all worth it. At least it's worth it for my wife, you know. It's worth it for me too. But what makes the childbirth of gospel ministry, all of the appeals, all of the confrontations, all of the prayers, all of the sweat and tears, all the phone conversations, all of the pursuit of people who don't want to be pursued, what makes it all worth it is in the line until Christ is formed in you. It's all about Christ. What makes it worth it is Christ formed in you. What makes it worth it is when you get to witness someone you have been laboring over. You see God at work in them and you see that they're, for the first time, their all-consuming passion is Jesus. When that gets formed in somebody, it's all worth it. The contrast here is who you're doing it for. The false teachers were in it for themselves. The Apostle Paul was not in it for himself. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live for the Son of God. What we have here is 
a motive check of why we do what we do. It's that Christ would become the all-consuming passion of anyone we engage. And if that's Paul's one great aim, it certainly must be ours. So, if you're a pastor or elder of Christ the King Church, make appeals, confront, check motives, love this church unto Christ. If you're a life group leader or in a life group, make appeals, loving appeals, do loving confrontation, check motives to love people unto Christ. King's kids, King's place, worship, slides, sound text, musicians, running wires. If you're on the connect team, if you're a husband or a wife or soon to be a husband or wife, make loving appeals. Make loving confrontations. Lovingly check motives. As we love one another to Christ, if you're a parent or a grandparent, appeal to your children. Appeal to them. Confront them in love with the gospel. Check motives. Now you might be saying, okay, okay, I get, I get it. I get it. But where do I start? Why do you think Paul loved the Galatians with the kind of love he did? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's where we start. We start with Christ's love for us. Christ's love for Paul compelled Paul to love others unto Christ. And that's where we start. Christ was crucified for me. He loved me. He gave himself up for me. And when that hits home, you'll be well positioned to love others. Even when it's costly and risky unto Christ. We've seen a loving appeal, a loving confrontation, and a loving motive check. Christ's love for us compels us to love others to Christ. So we must persevere in this risky business of loving each other unto Christ. And when we do, let's just see what God does. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, would you make us a people who love one another as you in Christ have loved us. And God, we ask for you to do what only you can do. Would you pour out your spirit in such a way that not only would you grow us in the grace of Christ Jesus, but you would cause the gospel to go out in Holy Spirit power. And there would be many who would come to know you as their Savior and King, their all-consuming passion, and you would add them to our number, or you would add them to churches in town. Whatever the case, your name be praised. It's your name. Amen.